You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Johnson & Johnson CEO Alex Gorski joins the Post to discuss the company's COVID-19 vaccine, which is easier to use in store, requires only a single dose, and was recently granted emergency use authorization in the U.S. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. This morning on our series, The Path Forward, our guest is Alex Gorski, the chief executive of Johnson Johnson, one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, and a company that this week was the third to receive emergency use authorization from the FDA to sell its vaccine in the U.S. We want to, in this period, shed some light on some of the complicated questions. Also learn from Mr. Gorski just exactly how he sees this rollout moving forward. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us today. Well, David, it's a real pleasure to be here and thank you for having us. So let's begin with the amazing announcement yesterday that you're gonna partner with Merck, one of your biggest competitors to produce uh, your uh, J&J vaccines in sufficient volumes. Tell us how that ag- agreement uh, came to be. P- President Biden d- described it as the, the type of collaboration between companies that we saw in World War II. It certainly is unusual. Tell us how it happened. Well, David, you're right. Um, these are unusual times, to say the least. And you know, we felt that um, given everything that's occurred with the virus, uh, the unexpected twists and turns, the surges that we've seen, uh, the the rising uh, observation of variants and mutations, that it's absolutely necessary for us, uh, not only as a country, not only as a healthcare system, but as Johnson and Johnson, to be doing everything we can to accelerate and in, to increase the capacity uh, of vials of our vaccine that can be available, and uh, and. Look, I'm incredibly proud of the progress that our team has made. If I think back 13 months ago when we started on this journey, uh, literally with an an email, with the genomic sequencing information of the COVID-19 virus and to see where we are today, having received FDA approval, uh, the nod from the CDC, uh, and now uh, already having distributed almost 4 million vaccines, uh, we know that uh, we should be doing everything possible and expanding partnerships. We've got a vast network now, uh, but we couldn't be more proud than to be in this partnership with Merck, uh, a company that's got a long and very uh, steeped experience in vaccines, in addition to other biopharmaceuticals. Uh, and by uh, working with them and the United States government, we've been able to you know, form this venture that is going to enable us uh, again to to move some of those vaccines forward uh, and to work uh, throughout the remainder of 2021 of uh, of expanding our production and building additional capacities. So we're really pleased to be able to do that, and and I think it's a uh, it's also a great example for the larger pharmaceutical industry in the way that we're seeing companies partner, that we're seeing public private partnerships coming together all as part of a broader effort to do everything we can to make a real difference with this virus. In in practical terms, uh, administration officials were telling the Post last night that they had worried that without this partnership with uh, Merck, uh, Johnson Johnson might fall short uh, of its uh, target production. Is there any any truth to that? Were you worried that you were not gonna be able to meet uh, your, your plans without this additional production capacity? Well, David, look, I think uh, it's important to put this into perspective and that 
When we started uh, with this, as I mentioned, about 13 months ago, the man, some of the manufacturing facilities uh, that we're now utilizing were literally parking lots. And, uh, and the, the complexity of bringing up this kind of scale, this kind of scope uh, within that period of time, I, I don't think it's ever been done before in the history of our industry. Uh, and, um, and as with any startup like that, look, there are twists and turns, there are ups and downs. It's never a straight linear shot. I think our team has made remarkable progress. Uh, we've been incredibly committed to, you know, making sure that we are maintaining a very, very high integrity as it relates to uh, the technology transfer, the quality that, that's required. And, um, and, and look, we, we're very, uh, we feel very good about the fact that we were able to ship right um, uh, at uh, the announcement of approval, almost 4 million doses, and we have a commitment to do 20 million by the end of March. Uh, and as uh, you know, we had previously announced 100 million by June. Uh, but in discussions with the government uh, and trying to say, hey, what else could we be doing? How else could we accelerate? Are there, are there ways that we could partner even more broadly to not only reinforce that confidence, but to perhaps accelerate it even further? And that's when in conversations, uh, we were able to sit down together and, uh, and bring this uh, partnership uh, to fruition, uh, again, which I think is going to do nothing but, again, give us greater confidence, uh, hopefully greater opportunity for acceleration, and ultimately more shots in arms for Americans and, and, and longer term for people around the world. I, I take it just to be, to be clear that, that the, there was some legitimate concern that, that absent this partnership, uh, you wouldn't be able to uh, certainly accelerate production, might not be able to meet the targets that have been set. Am I right in that? Well, uh, the way that I would classify is we're confident, but this this is helping to reinforce that in a significant way. Uh, and um, and look, we're, we've recently announced, for example, in Europe, a partnership with Sanofi as well. Uh, we've got uh, more than 10 different companies involved in a broad network here in the United States, but also in Europe and in other parts of the world. And, um, and as I think the prudent thing to do is uh, for anyone in this situation, particularly given the implications, are to make sure we're taking every step possible, again, to reinforce, to buttress, to support, to accelerate our opportunity for vaccines. You said uh, something interesting last night to CNBC talking about the Mer Merck uh, production partnership. You said, we think it's going to add considerably to our capabilities, both near and long term. You're committed, I think, to delivering 100 million doses by the end of June. Do you think that you can actually exceed that target uh, with this new capability? Well, that's our goal. Uh, and, uh, and again, this... Uh, this involves biology, this involves chemistry, this involves very sophisticated engineering, not only in the production of the drug, su drug substance, but also in the fill and finish. Uh, and, uh, and our engineers and our scientists are working, again, hand in hand with the Merck uh, supply chain team as we speak uh, to make this possible. And, uh, and look, we're very confident based upon the early work that we've done that uh, by working in the coming months that we're going to be able to you know, accelerate. The, the exact details of that, look, we're still working out, uh, but uh, the, the early signs and the early data transfer and technology transfer has been encouraging uh, and we're committed to doing everything possible to uh, making that acceleration possible.
And again, when we say acceleration, we mean that that you might be above the the targeted goal of 100 million doses by 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 June. Am I right? But that's our goal. That's our goal. Okay. So President Biden said a, a couple of other really interesting things yesterday, and I want to get your perspective as an industry leader on them. He he said that he'd like to get every teacher in America vaccinated by the end of March and every adult by the end of May. Are those realistic targets, do you think, given what you know about supply and demand? David, I'm really encouraged uh, by not only uh, the steps that we're taking at Johnson & Johnson and, and things even as you know we've just been discussing around our partnership, but also the steps by companies like Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, and I know all of the three of these companies have literally been working around the clock uh, to do everything we possibly can to expand the number of vaccine doses that are going to be delivered, especially over the next two or three month period. And, um, and I think the reason for optimism is that if we can achieve this distribution of several hundred million additional doses during this time frame, we are going to be at a point where there will be enough doses available for every American that can realistically be vaccinated. And I think once we remove the supply issue, then what we're going to see is the ability to actually distribute and administer go up significantly. And what I mean by that is, look, the CDC has issued guidelines, uh, especially when we were supply constrained about going to the elderly first, going to first responders, uh, in, in developing a, um, a very robust and well-understood hierarchy in terms of vaccinations. But as we get more supply and as we're no longer supply constrained, I think we'll be able to ease some of those guidelines up. And then of course, we can start the actual administration at scale. So whether it's through the you know, drive-throughs and stadiums, getting more and more pharmacies involved. Um, and, and once we start doing that, the number of vaccinations is going to go up significantly. Uh, and so I'm, uh, I'm getting a lot more confidence. I think that, uh, you know, the states, local uh, level governments, local communities are particularly important in communities of color and black, African-American, African Hispanic communities to be reaching there to make sure we have equitable distribution. Uh, but I think that those efforts are picking up significant momentum as we speak. And again, as they get access to more vaccines, we're going to be able to accelerate that throughput to a very significant degree in the coming months. That's, that's encouraging. I want to ask you about one puzzle that, that I know uh, parents who are watching our show today are, are thinking about, and that is, where do we stand on getting vaccines for children? Uh, are, are you in the stage now of trials for children's vaccines? Are there issues that complicate that? Uh, just give us a, a, a brief perspective on, on where that stands. David, the initial indication for these vaccines has been 18 and older, but all the companies now, including ourselves, are working on uh, its utilization, its testing in some clinical trials uh, for younger children. Uh, our first step would be in the age of 12 to 18, and then we would look at testing it earlier than 12, and actually also in women of childbearing age and uh, in pregnancy. And uh, we're working with the FDA as we speak. Uh, and we hope to have results. Uh, we'll hope to have results of those trials uh, by later this year. I'm not sure the exact timelines with the other companies, but I think in certain cases, some of those trials are already underway. 
And just thinking about the basic uh, timetable realities of, of t testing and production, is it possible that vaccines would be available for children under 18 uh, by September when parents want them to go back to school? Or are we really thinking, should we be thinking more about the end of the year? I, I think it's likely to occur right in that timeline. Uh, the good news is, is that the FDA is already working uh, with companies to establish the clear regulatory guidelines uh, so that uh, the appropriate data can be collected. Uh, and again, I know that all the companies are working. And look, in our case, we're particularly hopeful because uh, our vector platform that we were using uh, for this, the ADVAC 26, was used extensively uh, among broad age groups, young and old uh, in Africa when we were developing this for other conditions such as Ebola and HIV. So it gives us reasons to be optimistic regarding the safety profile in that, uh, in that patient population. But uh, we still have to do the clinical work, uh, uh, but I'm, I would be hopeful that in that time frame, uh, near the end of the, or the third quarter and into the fourth quarter, uh, that hopefully we can get that information to demonstrate safety and efficacy uh, in uh, adolescents and children. Let's talk about efficacy, which is one of the, the puzzles for, for the public. Your new one-dose vaccine uh, has been estimated to be roughly 70% effective overall, but it works, uh, my numbers say, 85% of the time against severe disease and is 100% effective in preventing hospitalization and death. Uh, I think the question that people are wondering about it is, is that number, are those numbers sufficient at a time when the, the two alternative vaccines are promising 95% uh, efficacy? Are, are, are people going to begin to vaccine shop? And what are you going to do about that basic uh, issue as people look at, look at the three and make comparisons? And David, it's a great question. And it's an important one to spend some time on because Look, I think all of us uh, over the past 12 months have almost tried to become experts on statistics, on clinical trials, and, and it can be an apples to orange, and apples to apples, and apples to tires comparison sometime, depending on exactly how you look at the data. I would bring up a few points uh, that are really important for patients under, to understand and that I think are quite consistent with comments from people like Dr. Fauci and, and others who are really experts in this field and have reviewed the data in considerable detail. And that is that the clinical trials for our vaccine really were done in the period from about September of 2020 to January of 2021. And as you remember, uh, the incidence rate of COVID-19, certainly here in the United States, but even more broadly around the world, was had experienced a bit of a flattening trend last summer but then as we unfortunately entered that fall season, we saw it begin to increase dramatically. Uh, and so our it's, it's really important when looking at our results as our trials reflected a very significant incidence rate increase through this period. Number two, our trial was conducted on a global basis uh, versus the other vaccines. And so what I mean by that is about 45% of the patients in our trial were here in the United States approximately 40% were in Latin America with a significant percentage in Brazil and approximately 15% in South Africa. And of course, Northern Brazil and South Africa are also the places where we're seeing the rise of these variants and these mutations that have occurred 
as the rate of transmission increased through the latter part of 2020 and early 2021. So we believe what we've seen is evolution, unfortunately, of the disease. We've seen in certain cases these variants uh, perhaps be uh, more easily transmittable, uh, perhaps more serious in the nature of the disease, and perhaps even resistant uh, to either monoclonal antibodies or some of the other vaccines. And even in these patient populations, and, in, and again, in our South African patients where the disease was observed, 90% of them had the South African variant, we saw 85% effectiveness in severe disease. And we saw it work 100% of the time thus far in keeping patients out of the hospital and keeping them from dying. And we think that's a very significant uh, statistic uh, for, the, for the, the population, for citizens to, to think about, to understand, because ultimately, I think all of us for ourselves, for our families, for our friends, want to make sure that if, you know, we don't get seriously ill, we don't have to go to the hospital, that the hospitals are not filled with you know, high numbers of patients that you know, clog up our system and that challenge it in even greater ways, and we certainly don't want them to die. And so as a result, I think they can have a lot of confidence. And look, it's important that, uh, you know, as the government said, we sh people should feel confident to get the first vaccine that they can. All these vaccines are very effective and very efficient. We're going to find more over time on how some of the other vaccines work against these variants or not. And, uh, but what's most important right now is to stop the transmission, is to stop some of these additional variants and mutations from developing. And that starts by getting vaccinated with a high degree of confidence and trust in all of them based upon the safety and efficacy uh, that we've seen thus far. So should I understand from what you just said, the, the testing that you did in these hotspots uh, in in Latin America, in, in South Africa, that it's possible, even likely, that your J&J &J vaccine is more effective against the variants that we've seen in those places than the other two, the Moderna and the Pfizer uh, vaccines that we, we've, we've read so much about. Is that possible? Well, you'll never know for certain until we do head-to-head -head clinical trials directly between these various vaccines. But uh, as of now, I believe we're the only vaccine to have an extensive database of, clin of actual real-world clinical evidence against these variants. Uh, and, uh, and I believe that's underway with some of the other vaccines, but you know, we, uh, we were very pleased to see these kind of outcomes. Uh, we were... Uh, we were optimistic based upon some of the early data, uh, the preclinical data uh, that you know we sh shared and that Moderna and Pfizer also have. But seeing it actually uh, in the clinic in these trials uh, again gives us a lot of confidence. So that even in these more uh, virulent, even in these more pernicious strains, uh, that we're seeing very good protection. That's that's helpful, Alex. Let me ask another uh, sort of technical question. Are, are you uh, thinking uh, of adding a second shot uh, to your one-dose vaccine uh, to, to deal with uh, additional variants or other complications? Or are you thinking about a booster that someone who take, has taken the J&J &J vaccine this year might take a year hence to catch them up, as it were, against new strains? 
And David, we're we're uh, attempting to take a very thoughtful, long-term strategic approach because we believe we will be fighting COVID-19 for some time. And from the very beginning, our scientists uh, really set their sights on saying, how could we optimally discover and develop a vaccine that was safe, that was effective, that was convenient, ideally one dose that would require minimal uh, refrigeration, uh, and that also could be scaled up uh, significantly in terms of um, manufacturing and the number of doses that could actually be produced. And as I'm sure you can appreciate and your listeners will be able to appreciate, there are, there are trade-offs uh, in pulling that together. And, um, and the, the approach, uh, the construct that they were able to um, develop really met all those criteria. Uh, and, uh, and, and so that became the candidate that we selected then took, we took into our phase one, two, 2A, and then phase three testing that we've been discussing the results on. So again, we think that based upon the clinical data that we generated thus far, uh, again, that we've been able to achieve uh, the majority of those criteria. Now, at the same time, we realize that we have to prepare for the future. Uh, so we simultaneously started uh, a trial looking at a second dose. And so in this case, it would be you know, our single dose followed up by another dose of Johnson, Johnson product vaccine to say, would that be even more effective? Could it perhaps have an even more durable, a longer um, uh, sustainability and protection? And, uh, and we're in the midst of that trial as we speak. I believe it's around 30,000 patients. Uh, we'll have more data, more information at the back end of this year uh, to find that out. Uh, nonetheless, we still have tremendous confidence in the single dose. Uh, but we're saying, hey, what could happen if we have another dose at a later point in time? Uh, and again, we'll have more information on that um, later this year. We're also simultaneously. Have, go ahead. I just was going to ask, uh, Alex, if you have any early indications about whether that second dose might uh, produce longer duration or other benefits. And now, you know, at this point in time, we remain very encouraged by the data that we're seeing from the single dose and that uh, we've got data points now that go out, David, to 56 and I believe over 80 days that are showing a very nice persistent curve, no diminution of effect. Uh, and of course, we're going to continue to monitor that uh, as we go forward. Uh, and our previous studies with other vaccines would not indicate that you would see a substantive improvement. Uh, but nonetheless, we want to try that specifically with the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, you know, to, uh, to answer that question going forward. And, and look, simultaneously, we're working on other formulations of our vaccines for variants or, and, uh, and, and future mutations uh, should they develop. So I think we could be uh, in a world where similar to a flu shot, you could require either additional boosters uh, of the same vaccines over time, uh, or of vaccines that have been created for new variants that have been identified uh, that uh, you know, could potentially be challenging uh, to the initial uh, vaccine uh, so that we can have those for application um, in the future. Let's talk about one of the really tricky problems here, and that's 
what we'll call vaccine hesitancy or vaccine resistance. There are people who don't want to take vaccines. Uh, numbers in the military has seem to be as high as 30 percent. Uh, the <clears throat> larger population is probably similar. Um, also, the U.S. Uh, uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops has been issues, issuing some warnings about about uh, taking uh, vaccines that uh, uh, may have cell lines that they think are, are inappropriate. Could you just uh, address the basic question of of encouraging people to to take these so that as large a percentage of the population as possible is vaccinated? Yes, uh, and and look, I think it's so important uh, for our country, for our healthcare system, uh, for all of our citizens uh, to get as many people vaccinated uh, as soon as possible. And hence, it's also incumbent upon us to be as transparent uh, with our data and to do everything we can to educate people about the importance of being vaccinated. Because unfortunately, we know that every time this virus is transmitted, uh, which is going to happen more frequently if people aren't vaccinated, you run the risk or there's the potential for it to slightly mutate and change its form that over time can lead to variations that could be resistant uh, to either a monoclonal antibody, uh, it could be more transmittable, it could uh, lead to more hospitalization or death, uh, or be resistant to vaccines. So the sooner we get more people vaccinated, the less of a probability or an opportunity we have from that from happening. But I also realize that there is some skepticism. And we can certainly understand that. We tried to address that very early on where I worked with some of my fellow CEOs uh, who were developing vaccines to make a statement about the importance of being very transparent with our data about the regulatory process that we were following. I think even the fact that, you know, in this case, not only have these vaccines undergone a review by the FDA, but they've also gone through a review by an independent advisory committee that uh, made a recommendation to the FDA after reviewing all of the data. And then yet there was another review by the CDC to take a look at that approval data uh, to ultimately make a recommendation on where and when and how these vaccines could be used. Uh, also, I think if you look now at the data that we're gathering real world, so in our case, prior to us being approved, we had almost 200,000 patients of experience uh, in other areas. Uh, so again, that gave us a high degree of confidence in the safety uh, of the vaccines. Now we've seen this been used in tens of millions of people in the United States, let alone more than hundreds of millions of people around the world, and we're seeing results in terms of safety and adverse events being very consistent with what we had saw in the earlier clinical trials. So it's certainly my hope that as we share that data, as we do even more to educate and encourage, as we make it easier and more accessible by getting to communities uh, so that barriers are broken down for people to get access that and, and hopefully, frankly, when people say, hey, you know, I've seen my neighbor, I've seen others take it, and even some of the surveys, well, I realize there's a certain percentage, perhaps 10% of the population that would be resistant to vaccines ever. There's maybe 10 or 20% that I say, I'm gonna wait and see. And hopefully as they're waiting and they're seeing now the good results that are taking place, 
and knowing that, look, all of us want to get our lives back to normal. All of us want to see our family and friends and get back to school and get back to work and be able to maybe take that vacation or, or do other activities that we enjoyed before. You know, vaccines are going to be such an important part of that. Uh, and so, again, I, I'm hopeful that through all those things that we just talked about, that we're going to see the acceptance and the willingness to get a vaccine go up so that we can achieve a, a level of herd immunity uh, that will clearly be in the best interest for our country and the world. Well, we'll all be looking at those numbers on, on hesitancy and, and, and hopefully, as you say, as the record of safety and efficacy improves, more people will want to take them. Let me ask you a, a, a final question, and that is what it's been like dealing with Uncle Sam as your business partner. You've been receiving substantial money, as, as has Merck, as have many of the companies. I wonder if your industry is ever going to be the same after this extraordinary marriage of government efforts and private sector efforts. Do you think your pharmaceutical industry will go back to the way it was, or are we really on a new trajectory now? Well, David, I hope we don't go back to doing business as usual. I think yeah, having spent more than 30 years of my life in this industry, I have never seen the level of partnership and collaboration uh, that I've observed over the last 13 months. And that starts with um, very in, in our discovery efforts. For example, you know, with, with us, we worked with uh, uh, physicians and scientists out of Beth Deaconess, uh, Israel, up in uh, Boston, where we really gathered some great data and great information in, in our platform. You're seeing that with the other companies as well. Uh, the, the way that the FDA and BARDA has worked in a very collaborative way to try to accelerate and look at the way that we did clinical trials. Uh, and, and, and look, there were, there's a lot of good rationale why we've done clinical trials the way that we have for decades. But given this extraordinary point in time and, and the challenge that the world is facing, uh, and frankly, in the, in, the, in the rising tide of deaths and morbidity and mortality, just to take an ordinary path was not acceptable. And, and yet doing that in a way where we weren't compromising safety, we weren't compromising quality, uh, meant that the, the uh, regulators were sharing information. We were sharing data between companies real time so that we weren't relying only on our own data sets, but other data sets so that it gave us much greater certainty in a shorter period of time. The partnering that we're seeing on the manufacturing side uh, you know, when I reached out to, uh, you know, my colleagues at, uh, you know, Paul Hudson at Sanofi, Ken Frazier at Merck, uh, they could not have been, uh, you know, more, um, more open uh, and more willing to get involved in any way that they could. And, and they've reached out. I think the government's clearly gotten involved in a significant way. And, and look, I believe that the way we're demonstrating not only that companies can partner, but that we can have public-private partnerships that, you know, maintain uh, that kind of uh, reliance on innovation and entrepreneurialism so that we have a sense of that real sense of urgency to get this through, but also harness resources, bring critical mass together, help to set certain priorities uh, to allow us to do things that we couldn't do on our own, uh, you know, is a, is a really promising approach. Uh, so, and, and, you know, and on top of that, whether it's the way that we're incorporating technology, data sciences into some of our clinical trial techniques, uh, the, you know, the way we use it to 
have meetings like this, being able to collaborate and communicate virtually versus real time. I think all of these are going to be capabilities and lessons that will be applied forward that hopefully makes us more effective, more efficient, better, more resilient, and ultimately is going to get treatments to patients faster uh, in the future. Well, that's a, a great note to close on. Uh, I want to thank Alex Gorski, the chief executive of Johnson Johnson, for helping untangle some of these issues and, and making clear the uh, significant uh, developments as, in his words, we accelerate production and distribution of vaccines. Uh, Alex, thank you for joining us today. Well, David, thank you very much for the thoughtful questions. And uh, look, I'd encourage everyone to please get vaccinated as soon as you can. Stay vigilant. We can get through this, and I know we'll all be stronger on the other side. Thank you very much. So uh, we'll be back at 2 o'clock today uh, for a Race in America special on the rise in Asian American violence. The national reporter from The Post, uh, Michelle Yi Ki Lee, will uh, be speaking with actors and producers uh, about this problem and the growing fears in the Asian American community. Uh, calls for action uh, and other related issues. Please join us. Thanks for uh, watching Washington Post Live. We'll be back with you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.